a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome back from the holidays. I hope it was a good one for you. Ah, trust me, there was plenty going on. We're going to be talking about it in today's show. And uh, being a Tuesday, happy to welcome Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, hope you had a great holiday. I did, more or less, uh, except for the fact that the E.V. Grinch stole Christmas. You know, in the context of of what what we're (laughs) about to hear... Um, the eastern United States really got pounded with some very serious winter weather over the last few days. So first I want to ask, how did things go in terms of, uh, did, did you guys get uh, blasted by that uh, polar vortex or bomb cyclone or whatever whatever the, the catchphrase is today? Oh, yeah, we sure did. Uh, temperatures fell into the single digits, and with the wind chill, it was well below that, uh, which will become relevant as we talk about how the EV Grinch stole Christmas. So... Do tell you you uh, you traveled a bit and and you took an EV. Yes, uh, I have a Mercedes EQS EV, which is essentially an electric version of the S Class, which is their top of the line sedan. So we're talking about a hundred forty hundred fifty thousand dollar car here. Anyway, uh, I thought it would be nice to go visit my mom, uh, who lives in Bedford, and that's about a hundred mile round trip for us from where I live in uh, in, in Floyd, Virginia. Nobody's going to know where that is, but anyway. Uh, and we thought we'd take the EV there. Well, the problem was the EV couldn't get there, <laughs> not without like a covered wagon train type of ordeal wow. that would entail probably several days of, of driving to do it. The cold really affected the EV. I could not get it charged much at home in the first place um, because the cold makes that very difficult to do. So when we left on our Odyssey, we only had about 120 miles of range. And I thought, you know, given that it's six degrees outside, that's probably pushing it a little bit, and it might be smart to put a little more range in this thing before we head out on the road and potentially get stuck by the side of the road. So I went to a fast charger that's down in Roanoke, and that's about 30 miles away, thinking, well, we can stop here for a half hour, 45 minutes, and maybe put an extra margin of, say, 30 or 40 miles in it, and that way we'll feel safe enough to make the trip. Problem was that none of them were working. There was a power outage, including the whole shopping center. And I don't know whether that was related to the load on the EV charger system or what, but the point was we couldn't do it there. Mm. So now we got a problem. What are we going to do? We burned up about 30 miles of range. We only have about 100 now on the clock, and that is definitely uh, skating on thin ice to make a trip when it's 9 degrees out. So we thought, okay, we'll use the Cars app to find another fast charger. That one was about 10 miles away, so we figured, okay, we'll drive there. So we did. We get there, and we find that we can't use those either. The machines would not let us just use a credit card or a debit card. We, we were required to download some kind of funky app and get that to work, and we didn't want to do it, and we weren't able to do it anyway. So we're sitting there at this fast charger, um, and the car at this point only has about 87 miles of indicated range left, and that's definitely not enough to make the trip. So we said, you know what, we're not going to be able to see my mom this Christmas. And we went back home. And by the time we drove back home in the six-degree weather, the the car was down to 29 miles of range. And the little light came on the dash and and said, you better plug in soon or you're going to be bricked. So that was it. You know, we were not able to do a simple trip of 100 miles in a $140,000 car 
because of the, the, the foibles of electric propulsion. Ah, but Eric, think of the environment you saved. Ha ha. <laughs> well, you were supposed to think about that. But on the other hand, you know, this thing is a 6,000-pound uh, rolling cell phone with 1,500 pounds of not particularly environmentally friendly product uh, inside of it. So, you know, and, and leaving aside the fact that the electricity that's being fed to these fast chargers and your house is the result of burning hydrocarbon fuels. So it's all a bunch of nonsense. But I think the take-home point here is not that the EV itself is the problem. The problem is uh, this compounding problem of relatively limited range to start out with uh, and really difficult uh, recharging protocols on the second hand. So it becomes this just circling the drain thing of constantly obsessing about how far you can go and how long you're going to have to wait. And I imagine there's a fair amount of stress that comes from, especially in cold weather, watching the temperatures drop and watching your battery level go lower and lower and realizing, you know what, there's going to be a point of no return where if we get stranded, it's not like you can sit there and run the heater, you know, while you wait to be rescued. Right. It's, it's You're going to be a popsicle. Right. That's exactly right. You have to essentially abandon the car. Uh, you know, it's not like with gas where, you know, you can find a gas station practically anywhere unless you're driving up in Manitoba, Canada somewhere. So it's not that big an issue, but these so-called fast chargers are relatively few and far between. And something that I've discovered is that they're not reliable. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And they tend not to work at the most inconvenient time. And when that happens, you're in a pickle. You know, if you relied on, you know, you're out there driving and you're assuming that that fast charger that's, say, 50 miles down the road is going to be there. Uh, and that's where you'll be able to recharge. You get there and you can't. Now what are you going to do? You know, this is something that people who own EVs are beginning to find out. And I'm doing my best to spread the word to people who are thinking about buying an EV. So to it, not using the fast charger, if you just had to rely on, you know, 120 volt uh, electricity, like plug it in at home and get it charging. Mm -hmm. How long do you estimate it would take to get that thing back up to a full charge? Oh, I, I don't have to estimate. I can tell you. I'm glad you asked that question. So when we got back, this was Friday afternoon around uh, 2 o'clock. Um, by Sunday morning, uh, which is two days, uh, it had put 70 miles of charge back into the vehicle. Wow. Yeah, so you're talking about several days uh, to put a full charge into the vehicle. So the, you know, consider that and how that would impact your life. And even if you have your house upgraded, and again, this is important for people to understand, you have to have your house upgraded, to be able to use a 240-volt uh, plug-in system, the charge charge time to full is, is typically 9 to 12 hours. So the best you can do in a few hours is a partial charge. And so now you're starting out with a partial charge, and then what are you going to do? You run out of range in the same problem, and it's just a circular. It just keeps on, on feeding on itself. And I think what it comes down to, I just wrote an article this morning, and it's up on the site, that ultimately electric vehicles are about reducing driving. They are not about getting people to uh, just sort of make the switch from driving gas engine cars to driving electric cars, and life will go on as we've typically known it. The agenda here is to reduce the amount of driving, and the electric vehicle is the means by which they're going to accomplish that. Boy, it, this is a powerful disincentive to, to wanting to, to drive a, or, mm -hmm. or own an EV. Now, by contrast, I admit, I, I may tip too far in the other direction. We traveled for Christmas, too. And, and I know my wife thinks I'm weird for doing this, but when we get where we're going, the first thing I do is I top off the gas tank. And mm -hmm. she's like, why? You know, we can always gas up, you know, on the way home. But I'm like, nope. I want, I want to know that my vehicle is fully charged, so to speak. You know, and, and of course, that takes five minutes sitting at a gas pump or, mm -hmm. or less. 
Yeah, and once you've done it, you don't have to worry about uh, coming out and finding out that a third of your, your quote-unquote uh, charge is gone, which is a problem with electric cars when they're left to sit outside. The colder it is, the faster that range reduction happens. Now, you can counteract that somewhat if you keep the vehicle plugged in all the time, but then what happens when the power goes out? I don't know if this happened in your neck of the country, but uh, during the height of the cold, I guess this was on Saturday, we got notices from the power company begging people to unplug, to turn off electric-using hydro appliances, you know, like like washers or, or dryers, I mean, and, and electric stoves and so on, because the grid was on the threshold of collapse. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, I I don't know. They, they look cool. Electric cars have all kinds of cool gadgets and whatnot, but... Um, weigh, weighing the the cost versus the uh, the the benefits, I I'm seeing more costs that I don't think I'd be willing to pay or risks that I'd be willing to well, take. Well, and the thing is, we can't really. The only way to make a vehicle like the one that I'm driving um, a practical in a comparable way to the gas engine equivalent is to have two of them. And now the people who can afford to buy the EQS are by definition very affluent people. This is a car with a base price around one hundred and five, hundred and ten thousand dollars and typically they, they transact for around $140,000. So if you can afford to buy a car like that, odds are you can probably afford to buy two. And you can probably afford to have two 240-volt independent plug-in circuits in your nice heated garage uh, to keep both of them plugged in uh, so that at any given moment, one of them is ready to go. But you can see where this is heading. You know, this is great for affluent people who can afford it. But for us proles, uh, forget about it. You know, you can't afford to buy even one EV. Uh, and so when you, you know, even if you could, you're not going to be able to drive it regularly. And I think ultimately, per my article about President Snow will drive an EV, mm-hmm. that's what this is really all about. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it would make an awesome grocery getter, but not much more. I mean, if you want to travel somewhere. I, right. I don't like watching the fuel gauge. I used to have to do that with my natural gas Honda, and it sucked. It added stress yes. to, to what should be an enjoyable trip. Sure, and, and you know that's, 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 that brings up something that's interesting to me in that the clientele who would buy a car like the EQS or frankly any EV because they're all expensive. You know the, the so-called affordable ones are fifty thousand bucks. Right. You know that's on the entry level for something like a Tesla three uh, or something like the Ford Mach E that I had about a week or so ago. Uh, you know, you pay that kind of money, are you going to want to have to orient your life around all of this and obsess about range and recharge time? No. I certainly wouldn't no. want to. Hold that thought. We're going to continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, let's talk about the used car market. About a year ago, mm-hmm. my wife and I bought uh, not one but two used cars. And, and we, we kicked ourselves every step of the way because not only were they very hard to find, but they were danged expensive. And I understand yep. there, there's, there's some warning signs in the air for those who are paying attention. Talk to me about what those early warning signs look like. Well, per the old saying, what goes up must come down. Um, we're all familiar with the way the uh, asking prices for used cars exploded to unprecedented historic highs uh, over the course of the last two years or so. And that was chiefly because, courtesy of these lockdowns and all of the other associated kabuki, uh, new car manufacturing effectively ceased for a long time. 
so so that people who wanted it, who needed a car, really were forced to go shopping for a used car. And used cars being in limited supply, too, that tended to drive up the price of them. So we had this bubble in the, the price of used vehicles. Well, the bubble has popped, and two of the, the best indicators of that are that Carvana and CarMax, two of the biggest chain used car sellers, appear to be on the verge of bankruptcy. Car, uh, Carvana, certainly. CarMax, the other day, posted its third quarter losses. Profits are down 86%. So this is absolutely catastrophic for them. But the good news for us, or at least for people who are potentially in the market for a vehicle, is that they're probably going to be able to buy used prices, uh, used vehicles for less than the price of a new car again very soon. Wow. So what does this tell us uh, about the economy? Can we can we infer anything from that? Well, yeah, it's this whole Potemkin Village facade of prosperity that we've talked about, you and I and many other people, for years. This illusion of affluence, it was driven by very low interest rates, which allowed people to uh, to, to take on a whole lot more debt than realistically they could afford. And this has to do with houses. It has to do with cars. So you had people whose family income was $60,000 going out and buying an $80,000 pickup truck. You know, it's a, it doesn't pencil out. It doesn't work. Uh, at least it doesn't work uh, so long uh, until interest rates start to go up, which they have. And now we're in a situation where you have a, a, a perfect storm of the value of the vehicles people took loans out on. Uh, before at the height of the bubble, now that's collapsing. And so they're owing more on the debt and they're probably going to walk away from it. You're going to see a lot of repossessions happening. Uh, and it just, it ripples throughout the economy. You know, people are no longer going to be able to afford uh, to continue on this debt finance lifestyle when the cost of money is something they can no longer afford. And we're at that point now. Wow. It's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm not sad to see 2022 draw to a close, but um, I, I admit I'm a little apprehensive about what lies around the corner for 2023. Give me your thoughts on some of the things we ought to be keeping an eye out for as we turn that calendar. Well, the thing I'm keeping my eye on that worries me above everything else is the prospect of some unilateral decree that we are going to uh, have to turn in our physical money for digital money. That terrifies me. And I hope everybody listening to this is as terrified of that as I am, because that would serve as a mechanism for near total control of the population with regard to everything. It would be very difficult to do anything contrary to what the powers that be say if they hold the purse strings, if they can turn off your ability to buy something simply because you haven't been a, a good, obedient little serf. That is the thing that worries me the most uh, heading into 2023. And of course, it's going to be sold to us in the name of convenience, as as most uh, you sure. know authoritarian and totalitarian measures are. Yeah, I saw something the other day, and you may have seen it as well. That was horrifying. It, it was a woman, a Western woman, who was in China, and she was gushing over how she could just go up to a a vending machine and and simply have the vending machine scan her face, and that would debit her uh, her digital money account and let her have a soda. Wow. Unreal. Well, you know, and uh, up in D.C., you may have seen this as well. Whole Foods, which is a notoriously leftist uh, uh, supermarket chain, uh, is implementing QR coding for people. You know, if you want to you want to shop there, uh, you have to wave your phone and your QR code and it's all done electronically. So they are indeed trying to habituate people to this as a convenience. This is the devil's temptation, in my opinion. Uh, this, this, oh, it'll just be so much easier. And it's 
true. There's a double meaning there. It will be so much easier for them to completely control us. Yeah, it's uh, it makes me more determined than ever that uh, I will breathe free. But uh, but I've I've reconciled the idea is going to mean I'm going to have to have more discomfort in my life, less convenience perhaps than those who are part of the system. But that's a trade-off I'm absolutely willing to make. You know, me too. And by the way, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm, I'm conducting an experiment. My, I pay my cell phone bill month to month. So every month I have to go online and, uh, you know, re-up the thing. Uh, and my cell phone service ended yesterday. So my cell phone is not currently working. And I think I'm going to go a couple of days without the thing and not re-up it and see what that's like. You know, there will be a little bit of inconvenience in terms of people that I work with uh, that are going to wonder why they can't text me. But I think it would be a really good thing if we can do it, all of us, to disconnect from this. These cell phones are uh, an integral part of this control apparatus that they want to impose on us. And I think if if we can cut that out of our lives, we can cut out a lot of the tyranny from our lives, too. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I know it's convenient. I, I love to have my cell phone. If I need to know directions to someplace, I pull up maps and away I go. But at the same time, all that metadata is being saved. It's being vacuumed up mm-hmm. by, by my government, you know, in hopes that someday if they want to build a case against me, they can basically reconstruct everywhere I've been, how long I was there, who I spoke to, who I texted, um, just from what they have been vacuuming up in terms of data. Sure. Absolutely. And you know, it is the necessary prequel or foundation to what they want to do next, uh, which is to embed money in our phones, to make it so that that's how you buy and sell, and to make it impossible for people to buy and sell without using one of these things. Uh, you know, it is the third rail uh, of, of freedom, of liberty, and if we touch it, uh, we're going to lose it. So I have to ask you this. I know you're not a particularly political animal, but uh, there's going to be a putative changing of the guard, at least in the House yeah. of Representatives, come January. Uh, do you have any hope that that some of this uh, this forward march of Leviathan is going to be either slowed down or perhaps turned back? Very little. You know, I, I actually I posted something insolent on Twitter the other day. You may have seen it. Uh, it was a picture of Mitch the Turtle McConnell standing next to our hero, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, leader of the Ukraine, and I and I captioned it with something that, like, uh, the only thing that's missing here is the leash in Zelensky's hand. Yes, uh, <laughs> we, we we really ought not to count on the establishment Republican Party. Uh, you know, not all Republicans. I'm talking about MickGOP.com.inc, whatever you want to call it. The organized institutional Republican Party is really fundamentally no different than the organized institutional Democrat Party. Uh, both of them want their power, and they want to divvy it up between themselves and to take it away from us. Uh, I hope that there are people within the party that can change that and reform it, but I'm not holding my breath. I look upon today's GOP much as people who were living in 1859 looked upon the Whigs. Wow. And, and uh, if, if it's bad, I'm still going to say it. I hope the Republican Party goes the way of the Whigs. I think it's time for something right. exactly. New. It needs to. It's a push, it's a push comes to shove moment. If they uh, just go along to get along, as they have done for the past 50 years at the very least, then what's the point of having them? And hopefully enough people will realize that, and that will prompt the necessary change that has to happen. Well, thanks thanks again for keeping an eye on all the different things that you do. Um, again, I encourage my, my listeners, please check out ericpetersautos.com. Um, anything on the horizon? We've got about 30 seconds or so left. Anything on the horizon uh, as far as vehicles that you'll be testing that we would want to watch for? Well, I'm getting one that isn't electric, thank God, so I'll be able to see my mom this coming week. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I look, I know we, we take the good as well as the bad news in stride, but uh, Eric, thanks for all of yep. your efforts to, to keep people thinking and, and reasoning and, and not just blindly following along because the herd seems to be running in that direction. You bet, Brian, and thanks as always for having me on. All right. Eric, great to talk with you once again. All the best in the new year. Sounds good, and likewise. Okay, we'll take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to share with you what may be the most provocative essay that I have read this year. It's from Brandon Smith, and he just puts it very bluntly. If our leaders are worried about a rebellion, all they really need to stop doing is committing treason. Yeah, this this is some straight-up truth. No sugarcoating. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, I hope you had a great uh, holiday weekend. I'm uh, I'm still kind of living in that uh, twilight zone where every day feels like Saturday. And I'm not really sure <laughs> what I'm supposed to be doing, but, you know, here I am, uh, back on uh, the air, holding forth. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, I, I have come across a commentary here from Brandon Smith that may be one of the best essays that I have read this whole year. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up front, he has some very blunt truths here, and they will likely make most people pretty uncomfortable because he's pointing to the elephant in the room and saying, hey, you know what I see? So I'm going to give you that uh, that mild warning ahead of time that I'm going to I'm going to skate out onto the thin ice with this one but I think it needs to be said his his essay is titled if government officials want to prevent rebellion they should stop committing treason and here's how he puts it he says I've been working within the liberty movement for almost 17 years now in that time I've been involved in numerous organizations that all generally fought the same battle or the same war that is the war against encroaching centralization and authoritarianism Now, each group and each institution has had different ideas about how to go about solving the problem of incremental tyranny. Some of them focused on politics, others on preparedness, and still others on convincing police and military to stand on the side of freedom. Some of them had focused goals. Some of them were scattered. Some had decent leadership, while the leadership in others was lacking or self-sabotaging. None of them, however, had malicious intent. None of them sought power over others, only to prevent power from being abused. Now, in some cases, the effort became confrontational because that was the only option, as with Bundy Ranch. Liberty activists vowed to never allow another Waco or Ruby Ridge in which federal agents violate the due process of of targeted citizens or outright murder them. And we should continue to hold to that promise. As we've seen time and time again, agencies like the FBI, ATF, CIA, etc. are corrupt beyond all reckoning. And there comes a point where the only solution to deal with a bully is to punch him in the teeth. Now, he says the January 6th event is also something that has been highly misrepresented on both sides. Leftists argue that it was an insurrection worse than anything seen since the Civil War in the name of installing Trump as a dictator. Many conservatives argue that it was a honeypot or false flag, which was completely controlled by feds and informants. But he says neither claim is accurate. Yes, there were obviously feds present at the event, and yes, Capitol Police let protesters into the building, as video evidence proves. But the vast majority of the people that showed up to the Capitol that day were not feds. They were normal Americans seeking to air their grievances, as is their constitutional right. 
and he says it's a mistake to pigeonhole every single major event as nothing more than a false flag. It's lazy and ignores the greater reality that many millions of people in the U.S. are unhappy with the declining state of our nation. As for those that claim it was an insurrection, they don't know what an insurrection is. Inconveniencing the government for a couple of hours is not an insurrection. Protesting at the Capitol building is not an insurrection. A real insurrection would be led by armed groups that would not leave the Capitol voluntarily. And many people on both sides would die during such an action. As it stands, not a single person was killed by a January 6th protester. Not one. Now, that's not something that can honestly be said for the BLM protests, which caused dozens of deaths and billions of dollars in property damage across the country. If it had been the BLM that day marching into the Capitol building, the media would have nothing but applause and positive things to say. But because it was a show of conservative strength, they call it an insurrection and they seek to imprison the people involved. The media response to BLM versus their response to January 6th tells us one thing. The establishment wants to destroy conservatives and elevate leftist movements. But he says this debate, however, ignores the bigger question. Why is half the country angry? Why does half the country mistrust the government to the point that a potential civil war seems like the only viable option? The establishment-controlled media and the Biden administration would argue that it's our fault. We're conspiracy theorists suffering from delusions of rising totalitarianism. We supposedly misinterpret everything we see as something more nefarious than what it is. We are dangerous because we are willing to lash out over changes that serve the greater good but disadvantage us in some way. Or, we are white supremacists and the evolving demographics of the country are triggering our inherent toxic ideology. Now, Brandon says none of these claims are true. All of them are easily debunked propaganda, but they represent a narrative that is repeated ad nauseum on every mainstream outlet, on every social media website, and by every leftist politician. There is no conspiracy theory. There is only conspiracy reality. Almost every single conspiracy claim made by liberty groups over the past two decades has turned out to be true. There is indeed an authoritarian agenda at the core of our government today, and it has been gestating for many years. We saw this agenda enacted right out in the open during the pandemic lockdowns. The federal government and some state governments sought to erase nearly every protection outlined in the Bill of Rights, including free speech. Most recently, we've seen the exposure of the Twitter files by Elon Musk, which contain hard evidence of collusion or direct communications between government agencies and big tech companies to silence the First Amendment rights of American citizens. Multiple agencies have been exposed this year in a conspiracy with the old Twitter management and undoubtedly all other large social media platforms to censor and ban targeted individuals or groups that discuss information that's contrary to the establishment narrative. Now, whether it's information on January 6th or info on the COVID pandemic or vaccines or info on Hunter Biden's laptop, the FBI, DHS, the DNC, etc., we're all engaging in a joint effort to erase dissent and hide the facts according to internal documents and communications with Twitter staff. The FBI in particular has even been caught paying Twitter staff millions of dollars to process their requests, in other words, to censor people. This is proven treason, a violation of several elements of the Bill of Rights, and the FBI should be eliminated for it, not reprimanded, but eliminated. The FBI's response to being caught was predictable. They state, quote, The men and women of the FBI work every day to protect the American public. It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency. 
A translation, we are your protectors. Therefore, we can do whatever we want. Anyone that calls us out on our corrupt operations is crazy and a liar, regardless of evidence. Discrediting the agency puts the public at risk. We are too big to fail. Now, Brandon says the corporate media will come up with numerous spin devices to try to dilute the Twitter revelations, but they will fail. There is no way around it. The U.S. government has been working with big tech companies to control free debate and silence citizens. The FBI has chosen a clear political side. They have gone to war against Americans that support constitutional liberty. This is illegal, and if punishment is not dealt to the officials involved, then eventually punishment will be enacted by members of the American public. Conservative libertarian rebellions usually usually do not happen without good reason. Conservatives prefer order rather than chaos. We prefer stability rather than crisis. We want the system to work and to serve the public as it is supposed to. It's our strength as well as our weakness. Where others see a broken country, we see something that might be fixed. We have no use, no use for deconstructionists who see crisis and disaster as opportunity. That said, when it becomes clear that the system does not work, that it's been corrupted beyond redemption, and the establishment is openly instituting tyrannical policies, we aren't going to stand by. We are going to act. Now, some people claim this is never going to happen, yet thousands of people showed up to face off with the feds at Bundy Ranch. Half the states in the U.S. stood against the COVID mandates, and thousands of people marched to the Capitol on January 6th. It's only a matter of time. He says, I don't think people realize how close we actually came to a kinetic civil war because of the COVID mandates and attempted vaccine passports. We were two seconds away from midnight. All I can say is the moment someone tries to force me to take an untested Big Pharma product, I'll put them six feet under. And almost everyone I know feels the same way. Now, the big secret that's not really secret is this. The establishment knows they're playing with fire. It's why they backed off from the mandates. They know that their corrupt actions are fomenting civil unrest and that in some cases, we have majority public support. They know that in the near future, there is going to be a rebellion against them. They know this because they plan to continue chipping away at our freedoms until we snap. They just want to be able to control the outcome when we do. The narratives we're hearing today about white supremacy, domestic terrorism, conspiracy theory, and conservative rage are only about one thing, gaslighting. They poke and prod and stab at us. They attack us and degrade our freedom subversively. And at the same time, they paint us as the insurrectionists, the aggressors. They do this so that when we move to stop them from attacking us, the notion that we are the aggressors is already planted in the public consciousness. This is fourth-generation warfare. It's classic psyops. If you are the psychopath causing harm, the best-case scenario is to make your victims out to be the bad guys instead. So when you get caught or your victims strike back, you can claim to be a victim yourself. Is this scheme going to work for establishment elites? No, he says, not in the long term. No amount of gaslighting is going to save a psychopath when his victims come to pay him back. What the rest of the public thinks of you does not matter. Only justice matters. Now, that said, he says, I want to reiterate the greater point here, which is that the actions of government agencies in the media suggest that the liberty movement is a legitimate threat to them. He says, we're far more prevalent than they care to admit. They want to paint us as fringe crazies and marginal bigots, while at the same time promoting the notion that we are capable of a national insurrection. They can't have it both ways. Now, there's a payoff here, but I'm going to have to come to it after the break. He has some very strong words for those uh, people who would uh, seek to subjugate us. And these are words that I think we all need to consider. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to MonticelloCollege.org as well as LifesavingFood.com. I appreciate their sponsorship. I have links to them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com if you'd like to visit them and do business with them. I think they'd be happy to hear from you. All right, so I've been sharing this article from Brandon Smith, and it's uh, government officials, if government officials want to prevent rebellion, they should stop committing treason. Now, he points out here that, uh, you know, we are being gaslighted, we are being poked and prodded, and and I, I agree with this. Every move that I have seen from the Biden administration from the moment they took office seems to be calculated to try to further back patriotic Americans into a corner and try to get someone, anyone, to lash out so they have an excuse to clamp down, declare martial law, whatever it is, you know, to, to you know, cancel the Second Amendment. And, and the problem is it's not going to work. It will not work. They do see us as a legitimate threat. And this is, this is the thing that Brandon wants, wants to bring home in his article here. He says, we are indeed a danger to them, not to America, just to the despots that want to deconstruct it. What they don't want is the populace to know that there's a very easy way to stop us. You ready for this? Simply stop committing treason and we will go away. Stop trying to erase our freedoms and we will back off quietly. Stop abusing governmental powers and you have nothing to fear from us. Continue in these behaviors and policies and yes, you should be afraid because once the reckoning begins, it will not stop until all elements of corruption are washed away. Probably some of the strongest words that I have seen written addressing this issue. And I know it's in the back of a lot of people's minds, and I get it. It makes people uncomfortable, even me. But it doesn't make it any less true. I've heard the analogy before that, you know, the fog only appears when the conditions are exactly right. And I believe that uh, the conditions in which uh, a people must stand up as the uh, as the colonists did, you know, in, in the Declaration of Independence and assume control over their government, take that authority away from those who are currently exercising it. Those conditions, I think, are, are what are causing the current patriotic fog, you know, to, to come rolling in. But if the tyranny would stop, if the treason would stop, if, if those in power would stop trying to take our freedoms... And just like the fog, when the conditions are, are right, the fog simply fades away, and it's not an issue. Probably means that a lot of us have uh, some not-so-easy choices to make here in the near future. Now, my choice was made a long time ago. I suspect that's probably true of uh, most of the people listening to this program. But there are others who are standing right there on that edge. Oh, what do I do? Do I go, you know, with the, the crowd? Do I go with, you know, with authority? Because I've been taught you always, you always defer to authority and you do what they say. I can't make that decision for you. All I can do is point out that uh, decision time is rapidly approaching. If you wait until it's on your doorstep, either literally or figuratively, the time to, to make the decision is done. Your decision has been made. You will be enslaved or taken off to the camps, or whatever is is decided to be done with those patriotic troublemakers. So you probably better figure out where you are. It's going to be too late to grow a backbone when the moment of truth arrives. I get it. I know it sounds subversive, and yet this is a pattern that has played out before, and, and the thing that drove 
the founding generation was not, you know, a desire for rebellion and their hot-bloodedness and uh, we're just going to go out there and nobody's going to tell me what to do. What they had was a more important quality, which was moral clarity. They clearly understood right from wrong. And if, if you don't believe that right now, the, the very concept of right versus wrong is under attack, please open your eyes. It's all being inverted. I forget the exact chapter and verse in Isaiah, but woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. We are living in that time. Kirk Cameron can't get his biblical-based biblical storybook, uh, you know, a, a public reading in a public library. But boy, the drag queen story hour is right there. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of values we want to promote, not this pff, Christian biblical nonsense. Kind of scary stuff. Well, at least, at least we know there, there are some truths that do not change. I think the greatest truth of all is that the author of liberty really does care about liberty. But if we want to be the kind of people who can live under liberty, we have to be the kind of people who would call upon God to help us, to sustain us, to strengthen us. All right. Thus endeth the sermon. One other thought here I wanted to share with you. Actually, I got a couple quick articles that I wanted to to point out to you. Um, This is a great one from Paul Rosenberg, How to Double Human Creativity by Limiting the Influence of Hierarchy. Now, he says, I'm completely serious about this. And he says, double is a conservative estimate. But he says... I'd like you to consider the role of creativity in human life. I don't think I've ever quite heard it put this way. The vast majority of creative acts, and we're talking inventions, musical compositions, great art, new business ideas, and so on, are unknown to us. And each of the ones we do know stand upon multiple unknowns. Consider a great musical composition like Mozart's uh, Overture from the Marriage of Figaro. It incorporates a dozen discoveries of harmony and counterpoint from a dozen forgotten musicians. Stylistic influences like French overtures and even the memories of great performances we'd heard as a boy, he had heard as a boy. Minus any of those things, and Figaro isn't the Figaro we know. So the vast majority of creative advances are simply invisible to us. And he says even in areas of life that are small enough to be fairly knowable, we still can't keep up. Paul says, I had a career in electrical contracting, and I can name all sorts of ways the industry became more efficient even during my time. But he says, I don't know the name of most of the innovators, not even from the years when I had an almost ideal vantage point from which to observe it. So if we could double the level of human creativity, we'd easily double the rate of improvement across the board. Construction, farming, nursing, trucking, everything else would improve far faster than it has been. Now he says, talking about creativity as a concept isn't the same as seeing it in real life. It's for good reason that we tend not to believe reports as much as we do observations. So he says, let me recount some direct observations to help convince you that massive increases in creativity are indeed possible. He says, back in the 70s, I hung out with a group, 200 people or so, who for a variety of reasons came to believe that musical creativity was possible to them, to every one of them. Because they believed that they could, nearly every person in this group wrote a few passable songs and a significant portion of them, minimally 15%, wrote 20 good songs many of them excellent songs. Now compare that with the general population. Talent, as John Taylor Gatto used to say, is common as dirt, and it truly is. Every healthy human has far more innate talent, however we might define that, than they know or might even want to know. But what restrains creativity? Well, one great suppressor is the expectation of others. What others expect of us, what they quietly demand of us, chokes our creativity. As Arthur Schopenhauer noted, we forfeit three-fourths of ourselves in order to be, to be like other people. And that three-fourths definitely includes our creative parts. 
The other great suppressor is fear of punishment. All of us live inside dominance hierarchies, rulership units, many types and sizes, that routinely punish noncompliance and whose edicts are so voluminous as to be unknowable. These structures can survive only by restraining human action, and so they do it. They do a lot of it. No government can survive without making people obey its commands. Their fundamental operating statement is, after all, do as we say or we'll hurt you. So the more hierarchy we have, the less we operate as individuals and the less creativity and emanation of our purest individuality we exhibit. Inside hierarchy, we are less ourselves. We become, in the proper meaning of the term, selfless and thus creative-less. Hannah Arendt noted this in The Origins of Totalitarianism. She said the disturbing factor in the success of totalitarianism is the true selflessness of its adherents. When we are truly selfless, says Paul Paul Rosenberg, as within a tyranny, we lose our capacity for individual judgment. We dare not see and judge for ourselves. We dare not stand on our own beliefs. We dare not differ from the crowd. We descend from creative beings to crowd beings, less conscious, less alive, and definitely less creative. So by dropping hierarchy, he says, we could massively increase our creativity. Getting rid of hierarchy, however, and he says, as much as I believe that would be a magnificent magnificent thing, doesn't prove my point. He says, my title, after all, implies that we can double creativity in the near future, not in some magical future. And then he goes into it. And he, says, he makes the case for why this is pop- possible. People have lived without hierarchy in many places and at many times. In fact, during the two big dark ages, some 99% of the populace lived without hierarchy for centuries. And from those times came some of the most important human advances. So he says, to close, I'll leave you with two short passages. The first from Albert Einstein, the second from Mark Twain. Einstein said, everything that is really great and inspiring is created by the individual who can labor in freedom. Mark Twain said thousands of geniuses live and die undiscovered, either by themselves or by others. That one really kicked me in the stomach. That one made me go, ooh. Because that would mean that, uh, that, yes, even you and I have creativity that we are suppressing, you know, maybe maybe on a conscious level, most likely on an unconscious level, simply because we're trying to fit in or we're trying to, you know, get along without making too many waves. I know it's a radical thing to suggest, but... Maybe now's a good time to be making the kind of waves that only you can make. And you get to determine what those waves are. This is The Brian Hyde Show.